I'd like to pray, and then we'll start. So we're starting a little bit later this evening, so I want to get you out of your decent hours. So let's pray, and we'll begin. This evening's message is entitled, God's Love Forgives. So let's pray. Sweet Jesus, I thank you for seeing something in us that we really struggle to see in ourselves. And I pray as we reflect upon uh, what biblical forgiveness looks like and how you engage with us and how you want us to respond to your goodness I pray that you would guide us, that you would speak truth into our hearts and into our minds, and that you would set us free from the things that are holding us back, uh, the negative views that we have of ourselves and of your view of us. This is our plea tonight, Lord, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're sharing this evening, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow afternoon. And uh, the topic over the course of this whole weekend is going to be centered around the topic of the Day of Atonement. Um, in some form or fashion, we will touch that topic in each one of the messages. But we're also going to be looking at the topic of mental health and our view of God and of God's view of us. Um, because I think that many people are scared to death when it comes to this topic, and they need not be. So I want to speak in that space. I did not plan it this way, but literally Yom Kippur was like Wednesday. Like the Day of Atonement was literally like this week, so, uh, which is really interesting. I didn't have any of that in mind, but uh, clearly somebody who knows a calendar better than I did, did. So praise the Lord for that. So here's, let's go. The New Testament, with one minor exception, uses two primary words for the topic of forgiveness. Haritzamai and Ephiamai. Okay, there are two different words here. They're largely used. We'll define those and work through them here in our next text. So in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, here's the first one, Haritzamai. It says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven, Haritzamai, you all trespasses. And we'll look at a couple definitions of this. We're just nerding out at the beginning because the way these terms are defined are super important for what we're going to talk about. So I'm not normally a big, like, dictionary guy, but this is helpful for this situation. So it says, the most common meaning uh, peculiar to the New Testament is to pardon or to graciously remit a person's sin. Uh, the Strong's Greek Dictionary defines it this way. A verb means to bestow, it's, it's a, as a verb, it means to bestow a favor, how? Unconditionally. And is used of the act of forgiveness, whether divine or human. So what's implied by this term, haritzamai, is the idea of unconditional favor or pardon. Okay, that's what's implied here. Again, we're looking at the two phases of forgiveness. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe in a two-phase forgiveness, or a two-phase atonement, I should say. And I want to kind of flesh that out in some of the language in the New Testament, because I think it's super, super helpful. Because... Uh, some of us kind of assume that we have to do things to get God to then do things, right? So like the, the process of inertia begins with us doing something and then God doing something. And so I want to kind of clarify how this process works. So Jesus takes the condemnation that we deserve and he pardons us. And he has a posture or a disposition of forgiveness towards us. And I think this is super important to see because if you look at some of these texts, it's very interesting. These are just some examples. I haven't used all the ones I could use. These are just some examples of God showing his posture of forgiveness towards humanity before humanity even makes a move. So God covering Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 before they're really willing to deal with what they've done, right? Adam's blaming Eve. Eve's blaming the serpent. Everybody's blaming anybody, but you know, no one's really taking responsibility. We see Moses numerous times in the Old Testament where God says, look, I'm going to wipe these people out, and then I'm going to make a people out of you. And he says, you can't do that. And he pleads with the people for their forgiveness. And does God respond to that? He does. But are the people asking for that? No. We, and, and don't misunderstand me. Just keep listening. It's going to make a whole lot of sense once I finish some of these initial points, because I'm not going where you may think I'm going. So in Matthew chapter 9, there's this guy who's a paralytic. And Jesus, before healing the man, says, son, your sins are forgiven you. But did the paralytic ask for forgiveness of his sins? No, he was brought there to be healed of a physical infirmity. But Jesus, again, has a posture of forgiveness towards this man before this man makes any moves. Jesus praying, Father, forgive them in Matthew chapter 27. Now, are the people who are around the cross all repenting and asking for forgiveness at this stage? No, they're mocking Jesus. They're laughing at Jesus. They're, they're criticizing Jesus. Jesus forgiving Peter before he confesses in John 21. We see Stephen, who's a type of Christ, praying that God would forgive the people who were stoning him. But are they asking for forgiveness? No. 
We see that God was in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.19, reconciling the world, not imputing their trespasses to them. And the point that I'm trying to make, and hope that you'll see this evening, is that God is looking for reasons to have you in the kingdom. He's not looking for reasons to exclude you, right? He's looking for reasons to get you in the kingdom. And when we see this, that he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So it wasn't like Jesus came and tried to convince the Father to love us. God commissioned Jesus to go, and that's in Romans 5 and verse 8, that God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And this is amazing because, again, we can have these really unhealthy views of God the Father. We can kind of roll with Jesus because we saw what he did for us, but the Father, we just think, ah, we, we really project our own disappointment in ourselves upon God. That we think that God looks at us in the way that we look at us, that I'm a loser, that I'm a mess, I can't get anything right, I'm a waste of his time, why does he bother with me? It's really easy for us to do that, but that's not how God actually feels about you. And it's important that we speak into that space this evening. So God, and so Jesus didn't come to convince the Father to love you. Romans 5.8 tells us that it's because God already loved you, and before you got anything right, that he sent Jesus. Okay, this is a super important point. Okay, so when this word is used, haritzamai, as forgiveness in the New Testament, apart from that text in Colossians 2.13, it's always used within the context of forgiving individuals without any mention of them confessing first, right? This is one of those principles of forgiveness where, you know, it's not that, okay, well, if this person shows some form of remorse, then I'll be willing to forgive them. Well, that's not how this process works, right? The process works in you finding your healing, your freedom, your closure by you processing that, whether they respond or not, because this is something that you need to work through, right? Uh, as far as an interpersonal forgiveness. And so this idea of, of offering that unconditionally, I'm choosing to release this pain, this frustration, this bitterness that I'm feeling towards this individual, whether they respond or not, whether they repent or not, I'm making that choice because I think that's the best thing that I need to do. So we forgive because we love, and it's impossible to love a sinner without forgiveness. Ellen White makes this amazing statement in Manuscript Releases, Volume 19, page 349. She says, Christ tells us that we must forgive the erring even 70 times 7. And then she says, and how infinitely greater is the love of God than is our love. So if we were told about this principle of not waiting until someone does something to show forgiveness, do you think God is even better at this principle than we are? Absolutely, right? This is his posture towards humanity, okay? Now, this, that's just the first phase of forgiveness, though. God having a posture of forgiveness to humanity and towards humanity, even before humanity recognizing all of what's going on. And us encountering that undeserved, unmerited uh, pardon of God is what leads to that second phase of forgiveness that we see in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, that the goodness of God leads us to repentance, Right? So when we encounter the overwhelming, undeserved goodness of God towards us, when we know we don't deserve that, it does something to us. You ever had one of those encounters? God shows you an amazing amount of grace in a situation that you know that you don't deserve it, and it leads you to, to like genuine biblical repentance. Peter had that in Luke chapter 5. So Jesus is teaching on the shore, and he says, hey, can I borrow your boat? He says, sure. So he gets in the boat, uses it like a natural amphitheater. The waters kind of project Jesus' voice to the shore. And then when he's done, Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and you'll catch some fish. And he's like, bro, I've been fishing all night, and I do this for a living. Like, that's cute. You know, you do carpentry. That's nice. But, like, I fish for a living, and I caught nothing all night. But I'm going to do it because you said so. And he does, you know, what happens? Did you say bam? Bam, exactly. Yeah, he ends up having so much fish that James and John bring their boat over. They fill both boats, and both boats begin to sink, right? And he's shown this overwhelming amount of grace, and he doesn't know what to do with it. And what's Peter's response? Does anyone know? Yeah, he, he, he says, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When he encountered the undeserved goodness of God, it led him to repentance. And this is such an important point for us, that it's not that God will choose to show us goodness when we repent first. Are you understanding? God has a posture of goodness, of forgiveness towards us, even before we make a move. And some may be saying, well, I don't know about that, because it doesn't say in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, in the English it reads that way, but in the original language it doesn't. And it's very interesting. It's the other word we're going to look at tonight. 
aphiomai, which means to send forth or send away from. So it's a separating, basically, of two parties, which is really fascinating because this is the way that 1 John 1, 9 actually reads in the original language. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which is amazing because we, again, the Seventh-day Adventists, believe in this idea of a two-phase atonement, right? That Jesus did die for our sins, but he didn't just die for our sins. He lived a sinless life to empower us to be separated from a life of sin, right? So that we can receive his life and live a life through his strength that's different than the life we lived before. So we don't just believe in the death of Jesus. We also believe in the life of Jesus. Both aspects of what he came here for are incredibly powerful and helpful for the human race, not just that Jesus died to clear our debt. Because imagine, if all Jesus did was die for humanity, that clears my debt. The problem is, when I accept that, I now need to live the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed. No problem, right? Because if I do, then I go right back into debt. So I don't just need someone to clear my debt, I also need someone to live a life that I have not lived. Are you understanding? I need both, and Jesus provides both, thankfully. So there are two types of forgiveness mentioned in the New Testament. One speaks of pardon, and the other speaks of cleansing and separating from sin. Now, this is part of where that Day of Atonement falls into play here. We see this, uh, this whole, these two ideas laid out in a similar fashion in the Old Testament sanctuary service, in the daily and the yearly services. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow morning. But the daily services are what you and I kind of know is, is the basic sinner's experience of recognizing I have a need, going, confessing that sin, pleading with God for forgiveness, and wanting to be, you know, distanced from that. So or the, the, the daily process is, you know, understanding, bringing, taking responsibility for your sin, and letting the, uh, the, the priest do that work on your behalf. So one is giving pardon, but then the other is separating the sinner from sin by cleansing the tabernacle in the entire camp, and that's on the Day of Atonement, right? Any record of confessed sins that went into that sanctuary 359 days out of the year on the Day of Atonement, all record of that was completely removed from the sanctuary. And it was a time for massive celebration amongst the Israelites because God was fighting for us. God was being faithful and declaring, I'm not going to hold this against you. You have confessed this sin. This is not going to be held against you. We're going to remove all record of this, which is really, really good news that God is fighting for me. Right? This helps us have a view of God that's proper and healthy and not improper and unhealthy. In fact, even the morning and evening sacrifices still happened on the Day of Atonement. And the morning and evening sacrifices were for, were for the sins that the people didn't know that they had committed. Because some of us are so freaked out about the Day of Atonement and all this like, ah, ah i got to get all this stuff out of my life or I'm never going to be good enough. And then like, let alone the fact, but what about the stuff I don't know that I did? Like, I'm really in trouble. Well, in the sanctuary service, that morning and evening sacrifice was happening even when you didn't know what you'd done. Like It's covering those sins that you don't know that you've committed. And so just imagine being an Israelite. You wake up in the morning and you look out your tent and you see this waft of cloud or of smoke coming off the altar in the morning. And your immediate thought is, God's working for me. God's actually working for me. God is making provision for me, even in the things that I don't know about. And he's willing to provide atonement for the things that I do know about when I come to him. You understanding? And so God literally is working for us. Now, I don't say this, right? I'm not mentioning what I'm mentioning about haritzamai, this idea of unconditional pardon. I'm not saying that to discredit or to discourage confession. In fact, this should lead to the opposite. When we see how good God is willing to be to us, when we come to him, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you distance yourself from the things and plead for God to, to separate you from the things that are keeping you from having the relationship with him that you'd like to have? Does that make sense? This isn't to discourage confession, right? If you want to be separated from your sin, it's going to require confession. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is saying. So we're not discrediting that. We're not downplaying our Adventist view of theology that sin matters, that it's gross, it's gnarly, it's a bad thing. Of course! But the point is, and this is a really, really, really big point, is that the plan of salvation begins with God and not with you. God is the one who's initiating this entire process. He already has a posture of forgiveness towards you. He wants you to see that so that you would feel safe enough to come into his presence to ask for forgiveness so that he could also separate you from your sin. Do you see that? 
The whole package is built in, and this is what God wants for us. So he takes the first step in pursuing and redeeming us, and this is what leads to our response of confession and forsaking of sin. So you can still embrace the topic of repentance and confession and taking responsibility for our sins, but you're also removing some of the galling weights that can fall on us. So both of these phases of forgiveness are absolutely vital for us to have a balanced view of salvation. If we just focus on a FMI, separating from sin, it leads to legalism and a lack of assurance or belief that God wants us or will accept us. But if we just focus on harizamai, which is unconditional pardon, it's going to lead us to believe that we don't need to do anything or there's no role that we play. Does that make sense? You can have a proper, balanced, three-dimensional view of salvation through this. And here's the point. The sacrifice of Jesus was so powerful and all-encompassing that no soul has been left unaffected. Literally, every soul that ever has lived and ever will live is directly impacted and receiving benefits from that sacrifice. Now, what does that look like? Well, let's just look at what the Bible says about this process, and then we'll kind of give some other definitions. We're told this in 1 John 2, 2. And he's the propitiation, the covering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? For the whole world. Now, again, bear with me until we make our closing point. But just look at what the Bible's saying here. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. For how many have sinned? All have fallen short of the glory of God. So all have sinned, and in the original language, it's actually in the continuative. For all have sinned and are continually falling short of the grace of God. But then what's implied in the next statement is still all. All being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that in a future text here in just a moment. Then it says in Romans 5, verses 6 and 8, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for who? For the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of how many? Of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, this last part of verse 10 furthers our point when it says, especially those who believe, because they will experience that second phase of forgiveness that separates them from their sins, right? Now, we are not saying that no one is lost right now. That's not where we're going with this, and it's going to make more sense in a few moments, but this is an important point. Ellen White picks up on this, Review and Herald, June 3, 1890. She says, it's difficult for the reason to grasp the majesty of Christ, the mystery of redemption. The shameful cross has been upraised, the nails have been driven through his hands, his feet, the cruel spear has pierced to the heart, and the redemption price has been paid for how many? For the human race. Again, we're talking about the magnitude of the cross. Signed to the Times, June 21, 1905. The whole world was gathered in the embrace of Christ. He died on the cross to give the death stroke to Satan and to take away the sin of every believing soul. He calls upon us to offer ourselves on the altar of service a living, consuming sacrifice. We are to make an unreserved surrender to God of all that we have and all that we are. And why would we do that? Because we first have understood how much He's given for us, right? So it's not that if I give up this stuff, then I'll get something in return. I respond to His goodness. That's what my repentance genuinely is. My response to His goodness, to His favor. So this is where we're going here. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. Listen to this. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through the one man's righteous act, speaking of Jesus, the free gift came to how many? All men. And what did it result in? Justification of life. This is a beautiful, beautiful principle. What the Bible literally is implying here, what the Apostle Paul is implying, and Ellen White's going to make this even more clear in just a moment, is that every person in this room right now, the very fact that you have breath in your lungs right now is evidence that God is not holding your sins against you. Right? Because the wages of sin is death. That's what all of us deserve. But we are receiving the benefits of Christ justifying death by being justified in our current existence. That's not justification by faith. That's a different topic. It's not saying that everyone is saved right now, but what we are saying is your current existence is allowed for. It's justified, righteous or lost, anyone for a purpose. God is giving time of probation to every human being to respond to his goodness. 
So the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus is literally justifying the current existence even of the lost so that they will have time to respond to the goodness of God. Isn't this amazing? And so L.O.I. picks up on this. Okay? So this, this topic of justification of life shows the beauty of the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection and its impact on the world. So listen to Ella White. She says, to the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. She's making the same connection of Romans 5. It's because of the death of Jesus that anyone is alive right now and why they're given that time. The bread we eat is the purchase of his broken body. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one, saint or sinner, eats his daily food, but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf and is reflected in every water spring. Literally, everyone is receiving of the goodness of God right now, whether they appreciate it or not, whether they respond to it or not, which is good news for us because, again, it's not that I have to pull the magic lever or do the magic deeds and then God will do something and maybe favor me. He's already favoring you. The very fact that you're alive is evidence of God's love and favor towards you and his disposition towards you, but you're not just alive by happenstance, you're alive for a purpose, and that greater purpose is to respond to his love and his goodness. That's why you're here. Maybe you're trying to find purpose in your life at this stage. The purpose of your life is to fully embrace the fact that you are fully known and fully loved by the God of the universe, that he wants you that he desires to be with you. And the fact that he's giving you this time right now while you're making your decision is evidence that he wants you here, right? Because he doesn't want to lose you. Education, page 29. Christ is the light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, John 1, 9. As through Christ, how many human beings have life? Every one of them. So also through him, every soul receives some ray of divine light. Not only intellectual, but spiritual power, a perception of right, a desire for goodness exists in every heart. Even those right impulses are benefits from the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. So when you find people in the world today who have absolutely no desire for the things of God, but have some philanthropic you know, ambitions and so forth, that's not theirs. Those ambitions were borrowed from someone just like their life is borrowed from someone. And it's for a reason, that those instincts of right that somehow find themselves in the human experience would point them to the source of all things that are right. The understanding? Desire of Ages 745, that prayer of Christ, when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, this is what Ellen White says about it. She says, that prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced how many people? The world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. And to all, forgiveness is freely offered. She's borrowing Roman's language there. To all, forgiveness is freely offered. Whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. Anyone has access to that. Anyone can respond to that. God's not excluding anyone. He's honoring their own decisions to be excluded. He's honoring their decision to say, I'll pass. Not interested. They're still benefiting from the life that he's giving them, the provision that he makes for their daily needs, and even those little impulses to right things. But they will not receive righteousness by faith. They will not receive justification by faith because they don't want it. You understanding? We're not speaking of that. We're not saying that everyone is saved, but everyone is currently being allowed to exist their existence is being justified right now because of the death in the life of Jesus. And here's the point. That payment was paid in full, and we can't change that. Right? Jesus had to die for all men. He had to do what was necessary for the justification of all men because all men were destined to be saved. That doesn't mean all men will be saved. You understand the difference? He wanted all to be saved. He made provision for all. So Jesus can't go back and undie for you because you don't want it. The only option he had was to provide what was necessary for everyone, whether they respond or not. Does that make sense? Okay? And so what we can do is reject that and refuse to surrender to it. So again, we're not saying that no one's going to be lost. Scripture is clear that many, unfortunately, will be. But what we are saying is that the cross of Christ and the love of God are so powerful that none should be lost. 
And his sacrifice was so sufficient as to encompass all of humanity. And it even justifies the current existence of the lost along with the saved to give them a probationary period of time to respond to the faith of Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. God's pursuing faith in us. To faith, our reciprocating faith in Him. As it is written, the just shall live by His faith, as it says in Habakkuk in the original language, by the faith of Jesus. So the only way that anyone is going to find faith in Jesus is by first encountering the faith of Jesus. That goodness of God towards humanity when we deserved it the least, when we could care less, He does that first, and that's what leads to our response. It's not that if I put my money in the vending machine, maybe I'll get something good out at the end of the day. You understand the difference? Our obedience, our confession, our repentance, all of that is our response to the already declared and achieved goodness of God. So we don't obey to get God to be good to us. Our obedience, in fact, heaven doesn't even view that as obedience, by the way. We only respond to His goodness to us. That's what true obedience is. That's what true worship is. Our response of gratitude for the goodness of God towards us when we know who we've been and what we really deserve. Which is why He does it this way. I think this is so important. So no one could respond to the cross and be justified by faith unless they first receive the justification of life. Dead people can't be saved, right? So He gives us this time, this season, and to make good use of it. And it changes your whole view of the world around you, right? We're not currently enduring the condemnation that we deserve because of the grace of Christ. But the big variable in the equation is, are we going to respond to God's grand display of love and pardon? Will you accept the gospel? Or will you continue to reject God's pleading through His Spirit to bring us home? And I love this because this premise and this principle now makes 2 Corinthians 5 make so much more sense. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. This is what drives us. This is what drives the Christian's experience to ease suffering, to be a blessing, to share the goodness of the gospel, to be willing to obey, to commune with God. It's the love of Jesus that drives us to do these things. And then he says, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, listen to this, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. The Bible literally says that the reason why you're alive right now is not to keep doing me. We should live, right? Jesus died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We no longer look at our fellow man for what we can get out of them, like dollarable commodities, right? Like, that's not how we look at people anymore. When we encounter the true gospel of God's grace, we recognize that if God saw something in me when I deserved it the least, maybe he sees the same thing in my neighbor. Maybe he sees the same thing in the person that I can't stand. And it changes your whole worldview because literally, that person that lives next door to you that could give two rips about Jesus is only alive right now because of the goodness of Jesus. And this changes your whole worldview. You recognize that it's the love of Christ that would compel me to desire their situation to change because I don't know how much time this person has. Now, I want to be careful with this because I'm not trying to throw somebody into like a, an experience of scrupulosity, which is it's basically a form of spiritual OCD, right? Where you, you fear that like if I don't say something, that they're going to be lost and like you're, you're in this constant state of a hyperactive conscience. That's not what we're saying here. But the point is, it does rearrange your worldview because you recognize people aren't just here. Are you, are you getting me this evening? People aren't just here. There's a purpose even for their life. And those little glimpses of goodness that you see in your neighbor who doesn't give any concern for the things of God, that wasn't them that did that. that that's a borrowed attribute, right? And to help them understand that there's something more in this world. The very fact that you exist is for a purpose. I believe that. Why do you believe that? Well, I'll tell you why. God sees value in you. That's why you're here. He's the one that loans life to all, I believe. So therefore, if anyone is Christ, so he says, uh, sorry, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Many of us come to Jesus for selfish reasons, right? A splitting hangover, a divorce, a traumatic event, or something else. All right, we find ourselves at 
stuff's falling apart and I need, a, I need a fire extinguisher to fix this thing. And the beautiful thing is Jesus accepts us in whatever means that we come to him. John chapter 6 tells us that if he who comes unto me, Jesus says, I will in no wise cast out. And I love this. Now, Ellen White actually comments on this verse. I've preached it a gazillion times. You've probably heard it a bunch of times. But she makes this statement that if you have no promises to claim, but this one promise from our Lord and Savior, you will never, never be turned away. That's what she says. If you come into Jesus' presence and you say, you said that he who comes unto me, I will no wise cast off, she says, that's enough. Then she goes a step further and she says, that if this is all that you have to claim from Jesus and you have nothing else to offer, in that moment when you claim that promise, she says, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. That he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If that's all you have to offer Jesus, when you claim that one promise, in that very moment, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. Which implies that God wants you in that city, not outside of the city. He's not expecting you to complete Navy SEALs training to prove whether you're good enough and then maybe I'll think about it. There's a reason why there's 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. He's implying ease of access. Now, he's not lowering the standard. He's not implying it doesn't matter what you do, just walk in. But the point is, and I've never said that, never would say that. And to jump to that conclusion is ridiculous. You're assuming the worst about me. Don't do that. But my point is this. The, what Jesus is implying here is that I want you inside of this city. Right? There's 12 doors, guys. 12 of them. I want you there. Jesus pled with his father in John chapter 17. Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. Jesus wants you there. And he did what it took to get you there. The question is, what are you going to do with the goodness of God? How will you respond to the time that he's given you? How will you respond to those impulses that he's given you? Are you just going to say, that's nice? Or I'm a, I'm a pretty good person and I'll be okay? Or are you recognizing that I literally bring nothing to the table and that Jesus saw something in me when I recognize that I have nothing to offer? It's in those moments that we recognize our true situation. The faith I live by 111. We're told that what is justification by faith? It's the work of God. The work of who? The work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. You can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And then she says, when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When we recognize what we don't bring to the table, what we don't deserve, and yet Jesus is willing to lavish it upon us, now we're on the vantage ground. That's the point. All right, so... Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what happens to them? They're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. So God is even working towards reconciliation through Jesus. He's not got a posture of, uh, I don't really know about these people, and what do you think, Jesus? Should we take them? Should we not? He has a posture of reconciliation to you. Right? He's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That God literally was in Christ reconciling us to himself. And then we're told, not imputing their trespasses to them. That's why you're still alive today. Right? He's not crediting that to you right now. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, when we no longer view people for what we can get out of them and we view them for the value that Jesus places on them, we recognize, I, I want them to experience the reconciliation that I'm experiencing. God has commissioned every one of you to be ambassadors of reconciliation on his behalf. And it's not because God is against us. It's because we're against him. God has never had a posture of being against you. And that's the point we're trying to make this evening. That's why these terms are used. So continuing to chapter 5 and verse 20 of 2 Corinthians. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now if God didn't want to be with them, why would he be telling these other people to be reconciled to God? He's not pleading with God to be reconciled to us. He's pleading with us to be reconciled to God. And this is important, again, because we, have, we can wrestle with this. We have these unhealthy views of God and unhealthy views of God's view of us. And that's going to have to change. 
Because many times our acting out, our sins, the medication that we want, work through and work through, and I'm, t- I'm not talking about you know, pharmaceuticals necessarily, but the things that we're doing to medicate the pain and difficulties of life are largely because we're believing things about God and ourselves that aren't true. And so we're seeking validation or to numb the pain that we're feeling because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to process it. We don't know how to work through that. And we'll talk about that tomorrow morning. And so our view of God, I'm fully convinced that there is a large, a larger than we would like to admit, percentage of our own people that are struggling in some form or fashion with mental health challenges largely because of our view of God. Bad theological distortions, mischaracterizations of God and how he does life, and the mischaracterizations of ourselves. That we're dirty losers, we don't deserve God's favor, we're never going to be good enough, we can't get anything right. These things literally cause us to have tremendous challenges in life. They're holding us back. And, and I think the investigative judgment has something to do with that too, the Day of Atonement. We'll talk about it tomorrow morning. So God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So everything that you've done, everything that you deserve because of your sins, your selfishness, and all of that, Jesus literally became all of that, 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us. He became that. Why? So that you could become everything that Jesus is, the righteousness of God. There is full and ample provision made for us, but does that even matter to us? Do we value that? Do we appreciate that? Are we responding to God's goodness with our own form of response? Repentance, confession, reconciliation, and so forth. Are you understanding? I think God's made a pretty clear case this evening. I've never been against you. I want you here. But do you want that? And some of us will say, yes, I want that. But then we'll go into reasons for why we can disqualify ourselves from receiving it. We have sympathy in our captivity. It's a form of Stockholm Syndrome, right? We, we, we hold sympathy towards our negative thought patterns, our self-hatred and so forth. Remember I was hearing Andrew Peterson, a singer-songwriter, he was telling a story one time that he was wrestling with some kind of heavy self-hatred and a friend of his said, Andrew, you know that self-hatred really is just a form of self-worship, right? And he's like, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> just kidding. But there's truth to that, right? Because if, if we're filled with self-hatred, we're focusing on hating the object of God's affection. It's a form of idolatry, right? Because we would rather cherish our own feelings of hatred towards ourselves than receive the truth of the matter that God loves me, that God desires me, and he wants me to see myself in the same way that he sees me, that I'm precious, that I'm valuable, that I'm important, that I'm special, that I'm the only thing that's just like me that God has access to. You're the only you that he has access to. You know that, right? You're the only you available to God, which means you're of infinite value because you're the only one he has access to. And he wants you. He knows your story. He knows your dirt. He knows what you are capable of and he knows what you're not capable of. And he literally is willing to do whatever it takes to see you in the kingdom. You don't know how to live a righteous life? There's good news. Jesus lived a righteous life. You can receive his. Yeah, but I believe lies. I only speak the truth. Will you listen to me? Literally, everything that you need. Well, I'm not righteous. Jesus is righteous. He'll clothe you with his righteousness. Do you see your need? Are you willing to receive it? He literally is doing whatever it takes to see you in the kingdom, but we are fighting hoof and claw. You can't do that. That's not fair. I don't deserve that. I'm not good enough for that. And we're literally rebuking Jesus in his goodness towards us because we don't think we deserve it. And so what we're really saying is the gospel really isn't the good news. We don't want to believe that the gospel is as good as it really is. Because at least I know what to expect when I keep creating chaos and self-sabotage and so forth, right? If I keep destroying everything around me, I know how to navigate that. I don't know what to do when people are good to me. You ever been there? Can't take money from people? Can't take compliments from people? Or you just do the whole praise the Lord, and in your heart you think, I, that was so terrible, that was so bad, right? Like, we, we, we wrestle with this, guys. We truly wrestle with favor. There's another singer-songwriter, he's a, he's a friend of, of Andrew Peterson, he says, we don't know what to do with a good thing. You don't know what to do with a good thing. Put the money in your pocket and run. You don't know what to do with a good thing. Favor is a loaded gun. Like, you just don't know, it's just, it's scary to you, like, and, and, and when we do encounter undeserved goodness from other people, suspicion arises. 
Oh, they're up to something. Because there's no good human beings in the world, because I'm not good, so certainly no one else can be good. You understanding? Our whole worldview is so messed up. And we think that those worldviews, we're not going to apply those to God. He's blessing me. No, no, he's not really blessed. Maybe the devil's trying to bless me, and that's why my test really will, because then, then I'll get really proud. I'll get arrogant. Like, we do, we do crazy things. We're crazy people. The Bible says that the whole head is sick in Isaiah chapter 1, right? It also says in Isaiah that we take refuge in lies, and we're going to hit that heavy tomorrow morning, but we do this to ourselves, and what God's trying to make clear this evening is, I have never been against you. Never. I don't intend to be against you. I want you with me, but will you respond to my goodness? Will you let yourself be loved? Will you let yourself be accepted? Will you let yourself receive my favor, my unconditional goodness? And yes, there is a role that we play. Repentance and confession is how we're going to find that separation from sin. That's totally true. I'm not downplaying that. But my goodness, people, we really need to reassess how we've been looking at this whole process. God wants you there. So we see in John chapter 8, the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, that if there's anybody in that congregation, in that gathering, because this was a church, by the way, this is in the temple, they throw the woman in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, well, he who's without a stone, let him throw, he who's without sin, let him throw a stone at her first. And what happens? Yeah, no one throws a stone. Of that group, by the way, of all the people present, who was actually able to throw a stone? And who could have? It's Jesus. What was his response to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, he was not heaping a weight upon her shoulders and not lifting a finger to help with it. Okay? And this is an important point. In the command of Jesus is the power to walk in the command of Jesus. There is creative power in the word of God. So when Jesus tells the man in John chapter 5 to rise, take up his mat, and walk, in that very command was the power to rise, take up his mat, and walk. Because that guy couldn't do that, right? His muscles went to atrophy. I'm at Loma Linda. You guys know a little bit about medicine, right? He's been an invalid for 38 years. His muscles have gone to atrophy. And he has no infrastructure to rise, pick up his mat, and walk. The only reason why he could is because he believed what Jesus said in spite of what he saw or felt. What if the same thing is true about what you're believing about yourself right now? What if you chose to respond to what Jesus says about you in spite of what you feel and what you see? Do you think maybe things could change? You better believe it. But if you keep living in an experience of staring in the mirror like Narcissus and dying because you can't stop staring at how broken and messed up you are, that wasn't why he stared at himself. He thought he was gorgeous, apparently. But the point is, so enraptured with his own reflection. Some of us are so enraptured with our own inadequacies that we're going to die from not receiving the basic things we need for life. That's not what God wants for you. That's not the abundant life. It's the thief that comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Not Jesus. He came that you may have an abundant life. And he's not stealing your money, y'all. I mean, he may be to some degree. He's trying to steal your assurance a healthy view of yourself, a healthy view of God, a vibrant relationship with Jesus. That's what he's looking to take. And this is so, so important. Anyway, so in the command to go and sin no more was the power for her to go and sin no more. What he's basically telling the woman is to walk in the freedom I've already provided for you. Because again, some of us say, well, Jesus, would you set me free from sin? But what you, part of what we're asking is, would you come and live that righteous life again because what you did already wasn't good enough, so I need you to do it again. But, Literally, he's already provided that. He already lived a righteous life for you. He already died for your sins. That has already been done. That's the objective truth of the gospel. Jesus already achieved these things. What he's asking you to do today is to receive that. So instead of asking Jesus to do something he's already done, why don't you receive what he's already done? This is one of those powerful lessons of righteousness by faith. I'm choosing to receive the goodness of Jesus. Jesus is righteous life. I'm asking for him to live his life through me not to do something, again, that he already did, right? So this is the beautiful thing, this balanced picture that she encountered accountability and acceptance. And this is what the true gospel should lead to. The true gospel of Jesus is going to lead to accountability and acceptance. The two kind of camps in our church, and I don't really fit in either one of their boxes, and life is better that way. But the two camps in our church, one camp kind of highlights the idea of acceptance, what you need to do. And the other camp's kind of highlighting, it doesn't really matter what you do, that Jesus accepts you. 
But the true picture of the gospel leads to both acceptance and accountability. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Right? And this is that whole idea of haritzamai and afiyamai. You encounter the goodness of God, but you're also encountering a separation from your sins. Right? He wants to give us this whole picture. Listen to what Ellen White says about the chronology of this situation. She says, The woman had stood before Jesus, cowering with fear. His words, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her first, had come to her as a death sentence. She dared not lift her eyes to the Savior's face, but silently awaited her doom. And in astonishment, she saw her accusers depart, speechless and confounded. And then those words of hope fell upon her ears, Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. And listen to this, this is the chronology. Her heart was melted, and casting herself at the feet of Jesus, she sobbed out her grateful love, and with bitter tears, what did she do? She confessed her sins. She encounters Haritzamai, and she responds, right, in receiving Aphiamai. She confesses, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see both principles in this woman's story. So what Jesus is telling her to do is to walk in the reality that he's already made available to her. She could go and sin no more because she now understood and accepted the fact that she was not condemned. Many of our own people are living an experience of shame and condemnation, so they can't get off the mat. And they're thinking to themselves, well, what's the point of reading or praying or studying anymore because I'm not changing. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. So why bother? And this is why people quit. If Satan can't deceive you, he'll discourage you. So yeah, you can give a booming Bible study on prophecy, but if you don't actually believe that God loves you and you're going to quit, why does that matter? Are you understanding? If we're discouraged, he still wins. This is why it's important for us to see ourselves healthfully as God sees us. So, Listen to this, Micah 7, 18 to 20. We see these two principles here. Haritzamai and Ephiamai, unconditional pardon and separation from sin. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, Haritzamai, and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Did you know that? No one says amen at Avon Hope. God delights in mercy, y'all. You can say amen to that. Okay, just making sure you have a pulse. Uh, they weren't holograms or something. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. And then listen to this. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Which one's that? A fiamai, right? Separation from sin. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you sworn to our fathers from days of old. So here's the point. In the life, death, burial, resurrection, and intercessory ministry of Jesus, complete pardon and complete cleansing and separation from sin is afforded. No expense was spared for your redemption. Not one. Everything you need is provided for. And so the appeal is to choose to walk in the reality of the faith of Jesus today. Believe in his belief in you. Respond to his goodness. Now, go to Matthew chapter 9. Had a bunch of text on the board, but turn there. Got to do some form of formal exercise. Go to Matthew chapter 9, 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 9, 28 and 29. Uh, uh, 27. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Verse 28, and when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm capable of doing what you're asking? They said to him, yes, Lord, and he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. My question to you this evening is, do you actually believe that Jesus is able to do this for you this evening? that he's actually willing and able to forgive you, that he's actually willing and able to separate you from your sins. Do you actually believe that? Are you living your life in that reality? Or have you cut yourself off from those blessings? So we love him because he first loved us. We have faith in him because he first had faith in us. And we forgive others as he forgave us. And one little closing thought here. It's very similar with the story of Mary Magdalene. Right? She didn't receive forgiveness because she loved. She loved because she was forgiven. Right? 1 John 4, 19. We love him. Why? Do you know? Because he first loved us. 
No one is going to find love in their hearts for Jesus until they first encounter the love of Jesus for them. That's all we're saying this evening. Okay? Now, it makes some people uncomfortable. Like, what are you saying? You're saying it doesn't really matter? No, I didn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But the point is, we, we need to wrestle through some of this stuff. What if the gospel is even better than you thought? And would you be willing to actually believe that and walk in that? Because you can keep living in purgatory if you want to, the Abnus version. But it's not really that enjoyable. You can actually delight in the goodness of God. You can receive it. You can allow yourself to be fully loved, fully known, and fully loved. Because it's not like he doesn't know already, right? Like, in just blatant honesty, like, you're way uglier than you think you are on the inside. You're good-looking people. But on the inside, we got stuff, guys. And it's way worse than you think. You think it's bad. You think it may be grounds for disqualification. He knows it's even deeper and darker than you think. But here's the good news. It doesn't discourage him from pursuing you. And it didn't keep him from dying for you. And it doesn't change his disposition of forgiveness towards you. This is what I love about God. right? Your piety doesn't impress him and, his, and your dirt doesn't discourage him. His love for you is an object of truth. Period. Like, and, and the gospel is an object of truth. He has done what's necessary for all. Now it becomes a subjective response. Will you opt into this thing? Will you respond to the faith of Jesus with faith in Jesus? Will you receive justification by faith? You're alive, right? You're receiving that form of justification. But will you receive justification by faith? Will you believe the things about you that God believes? Do you actually believe he can do that for you this evening? That's the question, yeah? Has this made sense this evening? Yes or no? The gospel is supposed to be good news, guys. And I think one of the reasons why we aren't sharing our faith with other people is because deep down inside, it's not really good news for us, right? If I'm never going to be good enough, if, if my life isn't changing, if I'm not overcoming, like, I'm kind of afraid to tell somebody else about the misery that I'm going through right now, right? And it's because we don't actually believe the gospel is as beautiful as it really is. God has always been for you and always will be. And if you find yourself in the resurrection of condemnation, it's not because God put you there. It's because God honored your decision to remain outside of the city. That's why you're there. He wants you in, but he leaves the choice with you. So what will you do with the goodness of God? That's the question. Amen? God in heaven, thank you for seeing something in me and in us that we don't see in ourselves. And I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for being so eager to find sympathy for the lies in our heart and in our mind that the enemy has placed there. We confess, Lord, our nothingness. And you've told us that when we see our nothingness, we're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We bring nothing to the table but us. We get it. And Lord, we accept the fact that if you saw something in us and you had that posture and that disposition towards us, why wouldn't we respond? So we pray that you would forgive our sins that you would cover us with the blood of Jesus. We confess, we forsake, and Lord, we want you to keep your promise to not only separate us from our sins, but Lord, we also pray that you would put within our own hearts and minds a posture of reconciliation towards you. Help us to believe what you believe about us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.